Welcome to Life's a Beach. I'm Bruce Hopkins, better known as Hoppo from Bondi Rescue. Each week I'll be sharing some stories, the good, the bad and everything in between. I'll be chatting to guests about their life experiences and giving our listeners an insight to the challenges we have faced in our lives. We'll share a few jokes and some banter along the way and hopefully our experiences will resonate with you. As the saying goes, while life's a beach, it can also be a bitch. Hey everyone, this week on Life's a Beach, he grew up in Wollongong, was a part of the Uncle Toby's Iron Man series, he debuted at 16 years of age, Phil Clayton, an absolute legend, he comes into the beach shack and he uh, talks about how he handled constant pressure of racing, we have a laugh about some of the times we had at the Australian titles, also the death of a good mate Dean Mercer, his coaching career, and now tells us about the ocean swim coaching, how he's helping so many people learn about dealing with and staying safe in the water. Now let's have a listen to my chat with Clado. Okay, this week in the Beach Shack, it's a pleasure. He's a, you'd know him probably from the days of the Uncle Toby's Iron Man series, but he's doing a lot more these days with helping people in the ocean. So it's a welcome, Phil Clayton. Clayto, how are you, mate? Yeah, great to see you, Hopper. Good to have a chat, bud. Mate, good to have you in. Now, I thought we'd start and give the listeners a background of where you grew up, which was down in Wollongong. So tell us a bit about how that was growing up. Yeah, it was pretty tough, um, cold environment, but with a lot of guys that were Ironmen, um, my heroes obviously down there were Jonathan Crowe, Todd Ballin, Darren Mercer and Dean Mercer, and uh, I followed in their footsteps. They were probably about six or seven years older than me, so I got to watch them do their thing when they were younger. My father was an ex-president of North Wollongong Surf Club and uh, former competitor, so it sort of fell in my lap that I was going to follow the footsteps. Once I started swimming and, and doing board and ski and enjoying it, it, it was just a natural progression. And then uh, watching Crowey, who was my actual coach, win all those races in the Uncle Toby's, he came to me one year and said, look, why don't you jump in and have a crack at the, the Uncle Toby series? And I was only a little kid then, I think I was 17 or 18, and uh, went on and, and made the series and spent 15 years doing that and had a fantastic life. But growing up down there in Wollongong, majority of my time was spent at our little holiday shack, which is up at Era. A lot of people don't know about it up in the National Park there, so we're Shack 56. Friday afternoon to Sunday night was pretty much every weekend I spent there surfing, swimming, diving, getting abalone, um, spearfishing, everything. It was a, a life was my, the beach was my life. So I uh, grew up in the water and, and that paid dividends come later in life when I, when I raced because so much of that then transpired over into how I raced and how I treated the ocean. So you think that, I mean, I know Kenny Holloway, which you probably know, he's got a shack down there as well. He's been trying Grew to get me, get me down there and, and get to the, the shack, but you've got to be ready for a big session of drinking the beers when you go down with those guys, as your old man knows. Uh, now, do you think that, as you said, that's where you learnt your skills in the ocean is going there to Ira? Yeah, 100%. I used to wake up and I never forget, I'd, I'd go down at sunup. Our shack was just about 80, 90 metres off the top of the cliff and it looked straight down on the beach. I'd stay out there until I couldn't lift my arms anymore and that was every single day and I did that over and over and over again. I remember start, I learned how to surf on a uh, moray boogie board, so just a flat boogie board with no fins and learning how to skim on that on a wave. Then I moved up to a big mail, then we moved up to the surf rescue board, then we moved down to a surfboard. 
And one of the best things about it was my father was an amazing body surfer. That's one of the skills that he had throughout his career. And uh, he showed me all the tricks and tips and put it into practice at a really young age. And if you've ever been to Ear, it's a great little break. There's a really nice left-hander over at North Ear. And that was my day. Some days I didn't even make it back up the hill. Dad had come down and picked me up at the bottom of the sand because I'd fall asleep at the base of the hill. I wouldn't even get up back, back up to the shack. Well, I remember growing up with, you know, Bronte Beach there and Kerbox, who ended up going onto the Pro Tour. We used to go down there and surf that left-hander. We'd, we'd go to Gary, walk around the rocks to Ear and... and uh, and surf off there. It's a great little uh, break. Yeah, sir, it certainly is. The one thing about it is you can catch a nice long wave, walk back out the rocks and jump back off and you're right in the lineup. So it's a lazy person's break. Used to see Oki out there quite a bit. He used to get down there and surf a lot when I was a young kid. But so many people from the uh, from your area, from uh, Maroubra, Bondi, all that area used to come down and it was great. The crowd would come in and then they'd all leave by two or three o'clock in the afternoon because they wanted to get back before dark and we'd have that wonderful little Arvo session. <laughs> Mate, you um, obviously came through the Nipper movement. Now, when did it dawn on you that you did have the talent to start doing some racing and, and winning? I did Nippers when I was 10. I went pretty good. Adam Weir, the current president of Surf Life Saving, him and I battled it out in the under-10s. He'd win the swim, I'd win the board, and then we'd battle it out for the Ironman. And then I actually didn't enjoy it. So I, I walked away from Nippers and I didn't come back until I was 13. I, I told my dad I wanted to retire at the bright old age of 10. And uh, I actually went and just surfed. I just stayed on my shortboard and just had a great time and went in a couple of surfing comps down in Wollongong. And, and I wasn't great, but I had fun with my mates and, and I just did a whole different avenue of, of sport. And then at about 14, 15, I never forget swimming at Unandera under Ron McKean and Rick McKean with the boys. I remember Dean Mercer one day had a go at me for mucking around. <laughs> I was a bit of a joker back in the day and he really ripped into me and he said, look, if you actually apply yourself and you have a crack, you never know what you could be. And I remember getting really angry at him. And I, we did, I think it was hundreds we had, and I stuck with him for the hundreds. And I thought, wow, you know, I'm only 15 years of age and I can't believe I'm keeping up with one of the best in the business. So from that day on, it was sort of the fire that started the, the passion that actually drove me to be an Ironman. And then you did go on and make the Uncle Toby series. What was that like? Unbelievable. Um, so coming from a surf life saving family, obviously mum and dad, every night we'd sat down and had dinner, we'd talk surf club. That's all we did because he was the president. Mum was in charge of the ladies auxiliary and uh, she took care of all the mums down there and all the foods and the lunches. We'd had quite a few Nutri-Grains down at, at North Wollongong. There hadn't been an Uncle Toby's yet, but for me, every Sunday or every fourth Sunday when the Nutri-Grain or, or the Uncle Toby's back then was on, our surf club would have two or 300 people sitting there. I'd be front row sitting there looking up at the screen, cheering for Jonathan Crow and Todd Borland. They were my idols and uh, that's all I wanted to be and I couldn't believe it. I actually qualified up at Surfers Paradise, got through and then I realised by about the third race that the guys that I thought were Greek gods and, and absolute icons, that were, they were just human beings and at the young old age of 18, I realised that they weren't something that I'd put them up on this humongous pedestal and they were actually beatable. And then from there on, life really took a different turn and I started to win a few races and had a great time. Well, mate, uh, yeah, Todd Ball and mate, he's still paddling. I'm, I'm, we're the same age. We've, we've been battling it out for years and he's still doing the Ocean Series. So it's, yeah, it's pretty, uh, pretty good. But, mate, some of the great competitors of Ironman racing were around in your era. So... How was that? The competitive and the depth in Ironman was amazing back in the 90s. Yeah, it was. It was tough. Um, the, the one difference was that they were very big compared to me. So everyone was six foot or, and I mean, Dean Mercer, Darren, myself, we were only small. 
for me coming in at 18, I'll never forget my first year in the, in the series. I'd stand on the line. Like it was just crazy. I'd stand there and look up at a six foot three Trevor Hendy, and next to that was Simon Martin and Clint Robinson. If you've ever shaken Clint Robinson's hand, he shook my hand one day and I lost my hand in his mitt. <laughs> He's such a big guy, and here I was, this little tiny skinny kid. I weighed about 62 kilos. First and guys that are 80, 90 kilos racing. So the one great thing about that was those icons were amazing on the board and the ski, but they really struggled when it came to swimming. Um, so I realized pretty early that if I worked twice as hard on my swim, and let my ski go that I could have a, a bit of a weapon that, that would make a difference against these big people in the ocean. Right, then you said you were quite young. So how did you handle the constant pressure of racing? I mean, a lot of people that I speak to at the elite level, you don't see the, the tough times in there with the racing and, and how hard it is to be consistent and trying to constantly keep winning. Yeah, it is. To go back and tell a funny story, the 1st I never forget the first time I actually won an Uncle Toby's race. My very first year in the series, I think out of the nine years I've been running, only eight people had ever won a race. And I, in the last three races, I got third, and then I got second, and the last race was at Portsea. By then, I'd, I'd sort of surrendered to the fact that I'd made the top 20. Even if I came last, I was going to finish in the top 20. So I didn't care, and I realized that I totally let go of all that stress, the drama, what it went to be to like to win and it was it's a funny story I was at the Portsy Surf Club and I was actually up on the top of the hill looking at the copper from the copper log looking straight down it was about eight foot onshore wind freezing cold the day before the race and I was shaking I thought oh my gosh how are we possibly going to race in this <laughs> it was so big and cold anyway Trevor pulled up next to me he'd won the last five there I think and he said you want to learn how to win at Portsy said I'd love to so he took me to the pub and uh <laughs> We went to the pub and got on the drink and we just, we relaxed. And I said, mate, what about training? He said, mate, you've done all the work now. He said, there's nothing more you can do. He said, it's about relaxing, enjoying it. Anyway, the next day came and it was an hour and a half race and Trevor and I battled it out for an hour and a half and I ended up beating him in the last run and I won my first race. And that's how it all happened from having a beer with with one of the greatest in our sport. (laughs) And it does work. I mean, that's a theory I've been running with as well for years. (laughs) I know, yeah. I've been standing next to you a few times. (laughs) Well, that that goes into a story I've got. I don't know if you remember this one, but we were on the drink at the Aussie titles one year and and you're probably the same as me. You know, once you have three, four, five beers, next thing you know, it's a... you're there till about 1am in the morning. And I think it was one of those nights that we, we ended up kept drinking through the night and not knowing that you had the final, I think it was the belt the next day. And you said to me, I said, mate, geez, you, you've got the final of the belt, Aussie titles tomorrow, maybe we should go home. And you said, no, nah, mate, it's all sweet because it, this makes me relax and I'll be right. And I thought, next morning I woke up and thought, I'm going to go down there and watch you have a race. And I think you're racing in the morning, 10 a.m. or something like that. And I was a little bit dusty and I thought, geez, if I'm feeling dusty, you must be the same. Anyway, you go out and end up winning that I belt did, race. Yeah. Yeah, that was a pretty fun night. There was uh, quite a few boys there that if they listen to this, they know who they are. We had a pretty enjoyable <laughs> night that night. I uh, I actually didn't even go home. I slept in the back of the uh, the van at the surf club and went out and I was very lucky that day. My dad, again, reads the surf really well. He put me into a rip on the right-hand side and I'll never forget, I was, same as you, I was dusty, but once <laughs> I got to the back of the break, there was Dev Lay and Chris Allen next to me and I'll never forget, I, f- I said to myself as I was swimming, after we had a cracking night, I said, I am never, ever in my wildest dreams going to be in this predicament again. So no matter what, I'm not losing. So I just kicked into my third, fourth, fifth gear. And uh, I was lucky enough to come away with the win and, and won the open belt at 37 years of age. Yeah, mate, it was an amazing effort. And um, 
Yeah, I don't know uh, if I would have even been able to swim past the break, let alone trying to race. <laughs> but it's mate, all about it, relaxing. That's it. That's that's the, the thing. And I think looking at young people, which we'll touch on later because you're doing and you've done a lot of coaching over the years, I think some of the young kids just get too stressed out about racing. And, and I think their racing's done before they even get on the line. Yeah, I think a lot of that can come back to uh, social media. A lot of kids these days are trying to put a persona up of what they are and, and who they are and how they live their lives. And I think a lot of it's false. I think a lot of them are lying about what actually goes on behind the scenes. And the worst part about it is they're expected to hold that level so high for so long. And it doesn't matter about yourself. It's, it's your mum, it's your friends, it's your mates, the group you hang out with. When that just keeps compounding and compounding, it makes it so much worse. So Back in our day, mate, we didn't have phones. We didn't have social media. I remember my first year in the series, computers weren't even around. I think 1996 was the first year a computer or the, the Wi-Fi came out. Mate, we were already racing and having a time of our life, so that pressure wasn't in there. And I think a really big problem these days is parents. Unfortunately, parents are really trying to win for their kids so they look apart when social media comes up, putting their kid up on that dais. Or, and I think it's a problem. I really do. I think it's a major thing, so... Um, to explain myself and my kids, it's it's a great relationship. It's it's up to the kids. So for my son and my daughter, if they don't wake up to their swimming alarm clock, I won't take them. It's totally their choice. And if they miss it, well, then they feel guilty. It's not on me. It's not the fact that I haven't chased them. So when they do stand on the line, all of a sudden, all of that comes pouring in um, that your, your social media, you've got to get your photo up. You've got to look after your sponsor. Mate, it's tough work for the kids of these days. Mate, it is tough, but uh, one thing, I'm glad the phones weren't around when, uh, when we were racing, especially the uh, after hours. But, uh, mate... <laughs> yeah, uh, you, were, you were pretty bad. <laughs> <laughs> mate, uh, you mentioned uh, Dean Mercer earlier. How did it feel, the death of Dean Mercer, who you as your idol, which was a tragic thing that happened? Yeah, it was awful. We, um, Dino and I were working together at Curro for so many years. He was actually the nipper coach. I was the head coach there, and... I had a um, personal training business that he took over. I'd had enough of it. I'd been doing it for about 10 years and I, I gave all the clients to him. That morning, he was training that group of mine that I'd, I'd handed over to him and just a tragedy, you know, he's a wonderful guy. And, uh, you know, I think whether it was a heart, heart attack from too much hard training or what it was, the, the final outcome, we didn't really get a, a complete wrap of it, but I was gutted. I was absolutely gutted. It was a really tough time and and Reen and the kids, I still work with Braden. Um, he just used my wetsuit on the weekend. He raced down at uh, at Tasmania. He got second in the in the junior all nations triathlon. So he's really found his niche in triathlon. He's only been doing it for two years, but a great family. Reen does an amazing job, and it was just it was a tough time. The one thing that led me into was Leachy working with Leachy with Dfibs. So after that, we've been on a, a really big push and a drive to sell Dfibs and get them out there and. Leachy's been doing a great job with that as well. He's been a, a real mentor for me in my life in regards to business. And that's where it all started was Dino. Once that happened, we moved into that, that area. He had Chucky, his mate, which you know. It's been a real big push for getting as many defibs out into the, into the world. Mate, yeah, it has been great. And um, I had a chat with Leachy. He's always around with his uh, golf now. Mate, he's, he's, it's like he's a pro golfer with his uh, every time. Yeah, he's got a bit coaches all over the place. But, uh, yeah, no, it's a great stuff that he's, that he's doing. Mate, we've all gone through tough times. Now, there was a period that you went through some tough times. There was. I'll give you a rundown. It was uh, we, my father and I, we invested in a, a, an app and we got involved with a certain person that completely ripped us off. I pretty much lost everything I had, my whole life savings, the whole lot, absolutely gone down the drain. 
he did it to not just us, but to a, a big group of people. It was a real life lesson. We, we thought we could see the, the easy, easy run to a lot of money. Pretty naive of us, but when those dollar signs come landing in your lap and everything looks good, we should have been wiser. And, you know, we went through a really rough patch. My wife and the kids, we actually went on the road for about two years and we actually farm stayed. So we'd go around and look, at people's, look after people's farms while they were away. That was one of the best times of my life. I absolutely loved it. We had some of the best times shoveling shit in uh, different paddocks and the kids hated it at first. But once we got used to the farm life and learning what to do, it was a, a real lesson that when you hit rock bottom, you realize how lucky you are with absolutely everything in your life. So right now, every day is just a, such a wonderful day from coming from where we were and getting to where we are now. Life's grand. Mate, that's great you've, you've bounced back. And, but times that are tough, like was there ever a time you thought, geez, I'm not going to get, I can't see the light at the end of the tunnel? Oh, totally. I had that for about 12 months. I kept chasing this bloke trying to get money and I, I didn't have any sort of income. I didn't have another job. That was I'd invested everything into it. I thought that this was going to start to pay the family. It was going to bring the bankroll coming in. And there was points there where, you know, we were struggling. We And obviously pride took over and you don't want to tell too many people, and uh, which is stupid. So you go through it all on your own. So the four of us went through it. Obviously the kids were young, they didn't know, but my wife and I, she was amazing, you know, she was making every penny count. And if we showed you some of the weeks that we went through and the food that like we've had to go and get some uh, boxes of food and whatnot, but it was all a life lesson and stupid me tried to paint a rosy picture on the outside telling everything, everyone everything was fine when it completely wasn't. One of my best mates was, was probably the best backbone and that was Brett Cooper from Cronulla. He was there the whole way through it and no matter what we went through, he was just always on the on my case, just, mate, what can I do? How can I help you? He knew, he could tell that I was really struggling. And uh, it comes down to mates and making sure you've got that, that fallback for someone to really pat you on the back and get you going again. Yeah, definitely. And it's something that, you know, we try and I do a lot of talks for mental health and that these days. And it's trying to reach out to people. Don't hide it, you know, it's reaching out because there's always someone close there that will give you a hand. But it's pride hopper, you know, we're grown men. Pride is a thing that people knock it on the head and you don't want to show your feelings. You don't want to let people know that you're struggling. You certainly don't want to let people know. And I, this was me. I didn't want to know, let people know coming from being a successful athlete that I've just blown all of my life savings and everything. I didn't want the world to know that. And that made it 10 times worse because I was trying to lie and hide and, and pretend that I was something that I completely wasn't. Once I finally let go and then we surrendered to the fact that, you know what, that money's gone. That part of my life's gone, time to move on. We need to take next steps to, to actually climb the ladder again. Mate, we, we started from complete zero where my first job, it was purely, purely, purely luck that was uh, Trevor Hendy rang up and said, can you actually come back and coach the nippers at, um, at Surface? And, mate, that was just life-saving. That was an income that I did not have. I didn't have an income for two years, and we were really scratching the bottom of the barrel. And that was the first stepping stone. Then the love of the sport came back. You realized how much it was fun. Then swimming started. Then all of a sudden, one thing led to another. Leachy and I, I was very open and honest with Leachy. He's a really close mate of mine, and he was straight up. He said, look, the only way you're getting out of this is by you doing the hard work. It's going to be a grind, but you need to take certain steps to make sure that you actually climb that ladder rather than staying in that hole, and he was amazing. And do you think, did you get back into competing at all at that stage and when you were coaching and that sort of helped? You had a goal to move forward? I didn't at first. I didn't want to at first because I'll be honest, I was embarrassed. I was embarrassed of where I was. I was embarrassed the whole life and everything. And then once I realized that who cares about what people think, who cares what they, how they judge me, 
It's about me and my family and being happy in life and, and the way we work. Once I got to that point, everything was just a bonus. So once I was at surface, then I thought I'll jump in and do a couple of swims. I went out with the boys and did a little bit of training there. All of a sudden, I got offered the job down at Burley Heads. I moved down. I was a head coach at Burley Heads. And they said, look, we'd love you to jump in and do a couple of swim races. And I think I was 38 or 39 by then. Actually, no, I was even older. I was 43. So I was 43 years of age (laughs) and I jumped in and we actually did the taplin and I jumped in with, it was quite funny, the old boys. So there was Zane Holmes, uh, Wesberg, myself and three young kids from the surf club and we got a bronze in the open taplin. So that inspired me to get back into it. The fitness started coming, the health got back in and uh, I realised how much I love the sport. Mate, the coaching, how was that? I mean, teaching and giving your knowledge back to young kids coming through who were looking up to you because of, you know, a lot of those would have seen you race back in the day. Yeah, it was, it's really good. Um, if anyone's ever been an athlete, they know that they learn the right and the wrong way. Um, as an athlete, the only way you get better is by making a mistake. Once you make a mistake, you've got to fix it. Um, that process just keeps repeating itself over and over and over unless you've got an amazing mentor that actually steps you through the right gate every single time, which is a real rarity. Um, for me, um, I love documenting things, so I'd write everything down. I can go back and have a look at the sessions at Crowey. Actually, he made me do it, so Crowey used to make me write all the sessions down. Um, he was a very serious coach, and I loved how he was. The only problem I didn't like was when there was a wave on, he wouldn't let us catch a wave because we had a session to do, and I'd go and muck around, but that was a little flaw. So I took the same attitude that he was when, when he coached me, and he was a hands-on coach. So he loved getting in the water with us. He loved making sure that we could, he could see our stroke or what we were doing, what effort we are putting in. And I learned really quick that I wanted to do the same, um, a different session every single time. And to see a kid do a session and actually get a feedback from a coach and they say, you know, everything was great, but you got to work on this, this and this. You do that constantly. There's more of a thrill coaching kids and watching them grow and succeed in life than there is winning on your own. It's just, it's a thrilling thing to do to be a coach. And mate, you've coached a lot of people. Now you've moved into the ocean swimming coaching. Now it sort of relates a bit to what I do as a lifeguard. I've seen the elite level and the elite level can do everything but a lot of people don't see just the punter how scared they are of the ocean how scared they are of marine animals in the the marine creatures in the water it's it's something some people won't go past you know their waist on the edge and then they get they take that extra step then they're caught in a rip and the, the panic the panic is what kills everyone so Give us an insight now into what you're doing with the uh, ocean swimming. Yeah, uh, about six or seven years ago, Trev Hendy rang up again and said, look, I'm running an open water swimming week over at Lord Howe Island. He goes, I'm just a bit tired. I've been doing it for four weeks. Can you run one? So I went over there and ran it for him. It was amazing. The best location I've ever been. Seven days of swimming at Lord Howe. From that, my wife and kids came. They said, look, this is what we need to do. This needs to be a part of our life. I'd already been engaged by Surf Life Saving Australia to go over to Rio. So I travelled over there and did two weeks. I did their pre-race check. So I went 12 months before with my old coach, Ron McKeon, and we did a site check. So I was moving into the avenue of, of open water swimming. Then a couple of triathletes got involved and, and asked me to come along. So from that, I started a business where basically I'm, I'm out there to teach punters, as you call them, how much fun the ocean is. And another good mate of mine, Ty Dowker, he was running the Burley Swim Run here up on the Gold Coast. And I jumped in with him and did a few weekly sessions with him. And that's blown out. So we're averaging between 80 and 100 swimmers on a Wednesday morning. 
On Sundays, we get between 120 to 150 swimmers. And what our goal is, is to basically pass on what we learn as young kids and as athletes and try and put that and instill the fun and the enjoyment, but the learning capabilities of what we learn young into those punters. And you make me laugh there how you say the marine creatures. The the first thing that happens when I do a session, so I've got one group called the Swim Start where they actually... I've actually employed Miranda Davies. She come, Miranda Goodwin, she comes down and runs a, a Learn to Swim in Tally Creek. First question they ask, what are you doing about the sharks? Every single time. So <laughs> we've got one lady there called Lucy. She wears a shark band on both her ankles. So they must work because she's still with us. <laughs> <laughs> well, mate, obviously Bondi gets a lot of tourists from all around the world. That's the first thing they say. They come over from, you know, European countries. They know oh, I'm not going in the water because the shark's going to get me, but they'll... They'll go straight in where the rip is, which will probably kill them way quicker than what you know a shark will. It's, staggering, it, isn't it? it's just a, a mental thing that they think we've just got these killer marine life. That's if they go in too deep, they're just going to get attacked. Yeah, it's it's the same up here. Um, the funniest thing I get is a lot of people hear secondhand and thirdhand that someone's friend or someone's mate has seen a shark there. Where I swim at Talabudra in the creek there. If you've ever been there, if anyone's ever been there, it's the most amazing creek. Uh, you've got a bridge, you've got the beautiful Burley Hill. On an incoming tide, it's crystal clear blue water. On an outgoing, it's a little bit darker, but we've never, in the time that I've ever been there, we've never seen a shark. We've never had that issue whatsoever, but people still rock up and they'll say, oh, a teacher in my class said that you shouldn't swim there because they're sharks. They just don't get it. They've never been there. They've never been involved with it. It only takes the person 20 minutes. Uh, once they jump in, I discuss what, what's actually happening in front of us. So I'm really big on explaining so we'll stand there and I'll talk about the conditions, the tide, what way the water's going, why the underneath current is, what the beach over the other side is going to be like compared to this side. And when they know, it's like their shoulders start up here at the start of the session. And as I keep explaining, they get lower and lower and lower. By the end, and when they jump in, they're so relaxed and they have a great time. Mate, when people are swimming, I've noticed that they can start calm and then the panic can set in at some stage. How do you deal with that or identify that when they're out there? Uh, it's their breathing. Every time, 95% of the time, it's just people shallow breathe. So they only breathe down to their lungs. They don't actually take a full breath. And if you haven't been taught how to do it properly at a young age, obviously with you and, you and I, we've been taught swimming from such a little age. A lot of people take it for granted because you're so used to doing it over and over and over. The worst thing for a person starting off is they'll walk down to a swimming group and they'll see everyone do it so easy yet they don't know that those people have been swimming for seven, eight, nine, 20 years, whatever it is. So the biggest thing I do is I try and teach them to slow down and relax. If I don't identify someone that's panicking, I start asking random questions. So I'll ask what their favorite coffee is or what they had for dinner last night. And the second their brain goes off the fact that they're panicking to talking about something else, they are relaxed and they're back to normal straight away. And it literally works within less than 20 seconds. I can have a person in a full panic attack back to normal, and then off they go and swim again. Mate, that's a great tip. And uh, I've had similar situations where I'm rescuing people, but it's sometimes we'll get four, five, six people at once if the other guys are off, you know, doing rescues yeah. down the other end of the beach. So you've, you're right. It, it, it's keeping them calm. If I look like I'm going right. panicking, they're just going to go on a mass panic. So, yeah, yeah. keeping them calm, it, 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 it does work. Yeah, well, a lot of people don't know how to be calm because they start building it up. That gets It gets stronger and stronger and stronger and stronger. As it gets to the, the final point, they can't take a full breath and that breathing is so short and so, so erratic, the oxygen's not getting through the body. That makes you think like you're about to drown. You're not swallowing water, but you're about to drown from your own breath, not taking a full lung. I couldn't imagine it with five people. 
especially different nationalities that don't speak English. It's pretty tough. Yeah, it is. It's quite tough. There's plenty of hand signals going on, but yeah, we get by. But that's the reason I think most people and drown is because they get to that panic stage, and like you said, the breathing goes. And I've been pushing a campaign, float to survive, and I think the first thing anyone should learn to do is how to float. If you float. That calms you down. You can think what's going on around you, and it does help before you then go into the swimming. We actually do a thing called uh, Silly Salmon. Silly Salmon is when we swim them up against the current. At the end of that, say we're doing a four-minute or a six-minute or eight-minute or whatever it is, it's tough work, and you're puffing, you're against the tide. It's really hard work. At the end of that, Ty and I will roll them over, and we'll give them a a full minute where they have to lay on their back, arms stretched, legs stretched, They've got to have their ears in the water and they've got to lay there and relax. The first time when they do it, a lot of people sit up and their head's all tilted and they can't do it. When they finally relax and realise how nice it is and how easy it is, that's the safest way. If you're in trouble, roll over on your back, just relax, take it easy. Um, If you're in the surf, we try and teach them to, to relax and hold their breath and make sure that they can tread water the right way. A lot of people tread water with little tiny duck feet. Um, They don't know how to actually get their feet out wide and make sure that they're nice and stable. So there's a few little tips and tricks that can really make a difference. And like you're doing with Rito, it's it's pretty amazing little simple thing. If people know that they can float and it's going to save their life, man, we can change a lot of a lot of drownings. And that's what I've realised too is even if people can swim, they get tired. And if they're not back mm. where they can stand up, mm. well, they need to float, have a break, get a bit of energy back, breathing's better, and then off you go again. Yeah, a lot of people try and put their head up and swim with their head up. The second that happens is your body drops. Um, when your feet drop, your waist drops. That makes it twice as hard. So if you're actually parallel swimming in the water, it's really, really tough when your feet are down. So I love it. We should incorporate this into all swimming sessions Australia or worldwide so people start to get used to, to floating to survive. Oh, it should be. It should be in that. It should be in schools. Uh, you know, it should be a, a, something that goes out everywhere. Mate, even good swimmers, though, can panic in open water. Have you noticed that? Yeah, we. Um, I went surfing the other day. We had the really big cyclone swell up here in Pyhurst, myself, Matt Bevelovacqua, and my son, Jet, we went out for a body bash. It was 10 to 12 foot, and my son had never been out that big, and we didn't have flippers. And it was really exciting for me to pass on the relaxing part. Now, you've got eight foot of whitewash coming out here, and you need to get under that whitewash. And he's looking at me with these massive eyes like this, just going, Dad, I said, mate, it's totally fine. It's just water. All we got to do is get under it, count to three, one, two, three, then come back up. And when we got out the back, he said to me, he goes, you know, I've never relaxed that much going under a wave. He goes, I didn't realize it was that easy. And I said, mate, that's what everyone does. These top-end athletes, Bevy and um, and Kai, they do it so effortlessly down there and they to- hold their breath. For, for normal swimmers, we actually get a couple of uh, Olympians. Alex Graham comes down and um, we get a couple of triathletes that jump into our squad. Those guys, when they have the, the rough and tough, the banging and the smashing, that's when the panic sets in. They're getting hit in the elbow. They're getting hit in the head. They can't take a stroke. That's when the real panic sets in. And uh, once they do it over and over and over again, they realize it's not that bad. They're pretty good. And you also, do you have people that come down that, you know, that, that have never swum in the ocean before or they're really scared and, 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 you, and you've do. got them through to a, to a stage? So what I actually do, I've started a new business where we've actually got a pathway for swimmers. So our first one is called Swim Safety. Now that's for punters who have never swam in the ocean. We actually take them down and I'll do, I only take 10 people at a time and we literally don't go very far past our waist. I teach them how to identify a rip. I teach them how to identify a wave, how to go under a wave, 
how to swim back in so the wave breaks over your head without drowning, how to actually take a breath and seeing the wave. There's so many parts of it. That one then goes up to our Swim Essentials. Our Swim Essentials is a Monday and a Thursday session. So for me, it's all about progression. Now, as I meet a swimmer who's new to it, once they've learned swim start and they start their progressive move up the ladder, I've got six different sessions they can go to as they climb the ladder and they love it. They get so thrilled. But to see them at the start go down to the beach and they we actually stand on the top of Miami Hill and look down and I identify a rip from nice and high, they don't want to get in the water. I've had ladies stand in their ankle depth going, oh, I'm, I can't believe I paid you to stand in ankle depth. By the end of the session, I've got them in the rip. We're going out in the rip. And once they actually learn to swim to the side, you can do breaststroke to the side. It's amazing how quick you get taken out of the rip. And they're all people that have been living on the Gold Coast their whole life, yet they've never known how to swim out of a rip, never known how to deal with that scenario. And for me as a coach, it's so much fun teaching them. And that's what I've found being so many years as a lifeguard is if you float and the water will take you 90% of the time, will take you across to where the uh, sandbank is or the waves are breaking because that's what we did as kids. You'd get in the rip, out to the lineup, and then surf back in. You know, that's the easiest way to do it. But the trouble is panic, and we talk about it a lot. Panic comes down to the, the second their feet can't touch the bottom and they're going backwards, they look at the shore and they try and swim straight back. The biggest no-no ever, the fact that people try and swim straight back to the beach, even I can't get back to the beach, or Kai Hurst, you're not going to be able to swim against the rip. You turn left, it's, you're out of it in seconds, and that whitewash will then push you straight back to the shore. It just doesn't get drummed into the public enough, and I think programs like yours, programs like mine, there's so many different other ocean swimming businesses out there, which is fantastic. The more we can spread it amongst the community, well, the more we can hopefully save lives. And when you went into this, obviously you came from an elite background. Did, did it amaze you that how many people really struggle in the ocean? Uh, no, not at all. Um, not at all. It's usually a demographic of people about above 45 or 50 years of age. And they've had a life where they've had kids and they've taken kids, but they've never been involved. They've been a parent looking at their kid train or, or race it's amazing how many mums and dads I get from surf clubs wanting to do my swim start because they're a water safety at North Burley or at Northcliffe or at Coolangatta where they are rotten scared of the ocean and they won't go in. So they come and do my course and these are mums and dads that are dropping their kids off and yelling at them saying, get in the water every day, you've got to do this, you've got to do that. They're the expert when they can't even swim themselves. So there's a lot of people out there that really struggle with it and it's, um, it's something that needs to be identified a little bit better. Yeah, definitely. Mate, um, great stuff what you're doing. Is there somewhere you know people want to get involved on the Gold Coast or people going up there where they can get in contact? Yeah, just philclaytonandco.com. You just jump online. I've got a website. It, it explains everything on it. I'm actually coming down to, to Bondi in a couple of weeks. We've got an ocean swim escape. So I actually take people all around the country. Once the borders come down, we're going to start traveling internationally with it. I just had 60 people up at Hamilton Island a couple of months ago and we're going to have about 25, 30 down in Bondi. What we do is I've paired up with um, World um, Ocean Sim Series. So I actually do a pre-race before it. So anyone who wants to race, I'll stand on the beach and I'll tell them how to sight the can, what to eat the night before, how to deal with nerves, where to go in, where to come out, what to do. And they love it. Um, I do a nine o'clock session and a four o'clock session before the um, Bondi to Bronny swim. But then I also do a swim escape. So we've got four days of swimming at different locations around uh, Bondi, which hopefully you're going to jump in and have a swim at one of them. We'll have a good laugh with a few people and you get to see the people that I deal with. They're wonderful guys and uh, 
we get to do it everywhere. We, we're going to go over to um, the Maldives. We're going to go to Hawaii and do the Rough Water Classic. We do the Hamilton Island Ocean Swim. There's a lot on the cards, which is exciting. Anyone that wants to jump on, they just got to get onto my website, which is philclaytonandco.com. And uh, they'll scroll through and they'll see everything that we've got on offer, which is, there's plenty there. Mate, it's fantastic. And uh, yeah, I'll definitely jump in and uh, catch up and have a swim. Sounds good. We're going to have a bit of fun. I might even get Harry's there to have a bit of a laugh with everyone, eh? Yeah, we'll get him there as well. He'll, uh, he'll run around and, and cause some chaos. <laughs> yes, he's done that with us before. <laughs> Mate, just one, other thing. There, <laughs> just one other thing is back when you in your day of racing, there were, you know, Portsy was massive surf, PR was massive. What do you think was the, the toughest conditions you ever raced in? Oh, Pihar by far. It was, it was next level. The difference between Pihar and Portsy though, Portsy was a bit more tougher in regards to the power of the actual wave. So when you go to Portsy, you've got to get past the shore break. The shore break could be three or four foot. Then you've got to get to the first break. Then you've got to get past the, third, the second break, which is right out the back. When you went to Pihar, our ski can was 2K out to sea and those waves were breaking on the can out there. I mean, we had waves over there that I actually voted no. I love big surf, but I thought it was too dangerous for us to race when we had to vote. I was that scared and, and that worried about the whole scenario. But once we ended up going in and racing, that first shot, I'm pretty sure you remember it when there was four of us at the first swim camp. I was the one in fourth spot. And I think it was Nathan Meyer, Craig Hackett, and I couldn't. I think it was Grant Wilkinson up the front. And, mate, I'll never forget coming up from whitewash. And the boy's about eight foot high, and the whitewash was like triple the height of it. And it just ripped that boy completely out. We looked at each other and just said, what are we doing here? This is ludicrous. <laughs> so it was fun though. It was great. The fact that we actually got to race in the biggest surf that's ever been raced. I was on my black Nike ski back then. I'll never forget we we're paddling out of the rocks and all the guys were backpedaling and I thought, oh, this is my chance to get out before them. And I took the go. I dropped the hammer and took about five big strokes and this wave just broke straight on my head and I came up, my ski was in too. So my race was over. <laughs> Mate, it was ah, uh, yeah, it would definitely be the biggest I've ever seen. It's uh, it was some great racing, but yeah, we we actually had a race at Bondi. Do you remember that year with Darren Mercer? So I was only sixteen then. Um, I had done the junior and the senior. What happened was I was in the senior one, and if you see Darren come down the wave waving like that, I'm still swimming two legs before, so I I couldn't get in. I nearly drowned. Right. And back then the rash vest was so big it kept filling up with water every time. And I went under one whitewash when I was swimming and the rash vest went over my head. And you imagine what it's like with the rash vest over your head. I was really close to drowning. I thought, <laughs> I thought this is it. I'm going to drown on Bondi Beach. It was unbelievable. Yeah, I mate, didn't even finish the race. Mate, that was a massive day. I remember, Darren. I think his, his ski just disintegrated as well when he got hammered when it broke. Yeah, but I think he took quite a bit of money that day. I think maybe like 500000 I think he won for the day. The oh, biggest mate. prize pool in the history of our sport. He, had a, he ended up winning from there. So, yeah, he had a big win. He did. He was a legend. He's he's just he's such a good bloke. He's uh, he hasn't changed a bit, Darren. He's up there at Noosa at the moment. He's a crack up. We had a, a Noosa swim escape um, two weeks ago. I had fifty people up there, and and he was there. He's, he has not changed one bit at all. He's still cool, old Daz, the Ice Man. Mate, he's the Ice Man, and I remember those cold winter days paddling at Lily Pilly, and they'd come up for Wollongong, and uh, I was there. I used to do all yeah, those. The old Lily Pilly paddles. How cold were those winter days going down? And Dean Mercer would get out in front and no one would let him pass. And then we'd get 50 metres from the end. We'd go, thanks for the ride and drop him. See you later, Dean. <laughs> That's right. Unbelievable. Good days. Lily Pooley was great. Good days then there, yeah. Well, mate, thanks, Clayto, for coming in and uh, talking about, you know, your career and also what you're doing now. It's fantastic that you're teaching people in the ocean. And as you said, I think that's something 
we really need to keep going and, and get a lot of people in there and learning and that will it will reduce the drowning yeah I, I couldn't agree more i think i think the government needs to get on board a little bit more i mean they sit back and, and let the the councils and whatnot do it but we've got so many international tourists coming in there's got to be a, a process for those international tourists to come in and whether they do a course on the plane the last two minutes of coming in on a plane there's a video or there's a leaflet in the back of every seat they're the biggest problem. So they come in here and see these amazing blue beaches. You guys do a great job and they think, oh, we're right. The Bondi lifeguards are going to save us. There needs to be something shown early so these guys are preventative rather than having to go out there and save them every single time. But thanks for getting me on. I love it. Great to have a chinwag. Always good to have a chat with you. I look forward to having a chat over a cold one. Mate, we will, we will. But uh, at the end, mate, I'll do this segment, Five Fun Facts. So I'm going to throw some questions at you and uh, answer them however you want, mate. It's no uh, wrong or right answers. Ah, no uh, here we go. Favorite childhood memory? Oh, I have to be growing up at Era. Diving for abalone would be my favorite thing I've ever done. Right, who is the messiest person you know? Kai Hurst. <laughs> you should see his car. It's horrendous. <laughs> What's a body part you wouldn't mind losing? A fingernail. Wouldn't mind losing a fingernail. <laughs> what is the dumbest way you've ever been injured? Oh, gosh, only eight months ago, I rolled over in a pothole and uh, sprained my ankle. I thought I broke it. It was the smallest hole. It was just so stupid. So rolling over in a pothole. If you're a DJ, what would your DJ name be? As if. (laughs) (laughs) DJ as if. Great answers, Claire. I wouldn't expect anything less, mate. (laughs) Cheers, buddy. All right, I'll uh, catch up with you soon and uh, when you're down in Sydney. I look forward to it. Thanks, Hoppo. Cheers, buddy. Now let's go to Beach Banner. This week for Beach Banner, we've got Reedy in the Beach Shack. Hey, mate. Hello, Hop. It's good to be back again. Lucky haven't, we haven't got the handcuffs this time. You're not going to cuff me. <laughs> <laughs> I know the kinky stuff you get up to. And I'm, I'm glad there's no handcuffs around. Well, mate, I, I learned from you because we did live together for 12 months. So uh, <laughs> a lot that I do has come from you. <laughs> <laughs> I've, got a gra- I've actually got a great photo from that time. I can, I can show the world if you like. Let me know if the yeah, listeners yeah. want to see it. Yeah, it's in the vault. In the vault. <laughs> <It's> in the- <laughs> mate, uh, we, you did get me to do something that, you know, in my later years, it was only last year, I think, that uh, <laughs> SAS has been a big show on TV. So you decided to get us all together and do a similar SAS. So tell us about that. Yeah, I, mate, I froth out on that show. I mean, I would be so bad at it. I mean, I'm I'm probably a 90-year-old living in a 42-year-old's body, but I just love the idea of pushing my body and, and seeing what I can do. And, and, yeah, and so I just called up a mate of mine and said, you know, like he's obviously um, sort of does special forces stuff for the Australian Navy and a lot of dive stuff. And I thought Navy would be better because it's it's in and around the water and it's a little bit more our cup of tea. And so he put together a day for us. And when I was talking about it to someone, I think Bondo Rescue overheard and they said, oh, we'd love to film that. And I thought, oh, yeah, maybe not. <laughs> I don't know how bad we're going to go. But, but yeah, and so anyway, it all sort of came together and we needed one more and I thought, geez, I'm with a few fit blokes here. I need someone to make me look good. And I said, hey, Hop, <laughs> reckon you want to come and do this thing with me? 
Anyway, he said, yeah, oh, what are we going to lift? How much running is there? And blah, blah, blah. I said, mate, you'll be fine. If I can do it, you can do it. So anyway, next minute, we're on Manly Beach and it's about 3.30 a.m. <laughs> and we're lugging a log down the, down the sand. You're in the opposite team, obviously. I had to put you against me because yeah. I needed, again, I needed to look good. Um, but no, nah, it was a great morning. They came and filmed it. And um, I actually don't think it made the cut. But, um, but yeah, we had a great day out. It, uh, it it was just a whole bunch of military exercises, exactly like you see on SAS Australia. You know, we were getting thrown in the cold water, carrying logs around. I think we carried a log all the way up to North Head, would you believe it, as a team of four, and you had a team of four. And, um, mate, they were heavy, if I remember rightly. It weighed a tonne. Oh, mate, um, it weighed heaps. I mean, I was gone from the – it's still dark when we're doing these – they said, I'll just do some exercises – Mate, yeah. I was gone from that. It hadn't even got light yeah. yet. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. But anyway, we ended up over at um, Awaba, Awaba Street, which is one of the steepest streets in Balmoral, doing a whole bunch of exercises. And probably one of my favourite ones was where they made us run up and down this big set of stairs and you get to the top and you get given a code and you had to remember the code on the way back down when you were stuffed. And I think I think my team stuffed it completely. And I think your team did all right in the end. But um. But, yeah, and then not long after that we had to do, I think they call it 50 for 50 or something, and it's 50 exercises. Yeah. Sorry, it's it's 10 different exercises and 50 of each exercise. The reps, reps, 50 yeah, reps. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there was kettlebell swing, and, mate, you and me were hopeless oh. at it. You had all these fit blokes just throwing throwing the weights around, and I think the last <laughs> time I did weights was back in 1973. So, yeah, not good. I, I We excelled at the running, but the weights, no good. So, yeah. Um, but a great day out, and hopefully we'll either see it on YouTube or it'll make the cut of season 17 if it ever makes it. Yeah, hopefully it uh, gets a start somewhere. After all that pain I went through, <laughs> I mate, I, the last thing I remember, I was that gone by the end of the day, and we had to do that that the little sprints at the end, you know. There was about 10 yeah. laps of these little sprints, and I was hanging on the back of Will's shirt to drag me along to get through. I was gone, absolutely oh, gone after that 50 by 50 thing. It was, mate, it was just ridiculous how hard that was. Yeah, I think it just goes to show and gives you a lot of respect for how fit those guys are. I mean, I think we're pretty fit, but, mate, those guys are just another level. Just strong and fit. Although I think we welcomed them down for a paddle around the cans, I think, a little M-shape, and they, they declined. So I know a lot of the Navy divers like to wear their flippers, so maybe that's where we'll get them <laughs> hot in the ocean swim, maybe. Yeah, I don't know how well they'd go in a, in a bit of a wave. Yeah, maybe we get them down there and return the favour. <laughs> well, there's not many waves when you go to war. No, that's right, that's right. Although it looked like there was waves when they were bringing the boats in at Gallipoli, if I remember right. Yeah, there's a little wave there. Yeah, little wave there. You, you would have been a young bloke back then, wouldn't you? <laughs> yeah, mate, teenager. <laughs> <laughs> I've just, hel- just got to take my helmet off, mate. I'll be right. Ta- <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it. <laughs> All right, mate. Hopefully it does make the cut. And uh, anyway, I hope this episode makes a cut too. So yeah. thanks for coming in, mate. <laughs> <laughs> thanks for having me. <laughs> now it's time to have a listen to the fans in the mailbag. Okay, this week's letter from the mailbag is from Jason, and he's from Melbourne in Victoria. His question is, uh, how did you take the news of Shane Warne, the death of Shane Warne? Well, uh, mate, it was uh, quite a shock. I mean, 
I've grown up all these years watching him. I'm only a year older than Shane and uh, watched him play his whole cricketing career. I'm a massive cricket fan. Condolences to his family and friends. It's uh, something that I think the entire world is really struggling with, the news of the death of Shane Warne. And uh, recently, I was only just chatting to him on uh, FaceTime late last year. It was the uh, launch of the Foxdale Summer of Cricket and they're having that down at Bondi Beach. And unfortunately, he couldn't make it to the beach because of the COVID lockdowns. He couldn't get down into Sydney. So the great bloke he is, so nobody missed out on, on seeing him and chatting to him. He uh, organised to do a FaceTime with uh, myself and Andy Mole, one of the other lifeguards, and uh, we had a good chat for a, you know, a good 10 minutes, which was amazing. And he gave up his time for so many people, which you'd be hearing now in the media. But, uh, mate, thanks for your uh, question, and uh, let's hope that uh, his legacy will live on forever. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Remember to subscribe to Life's a Beach wherever you get your podcasts and hit us up with questions, comments, or follow us on our social media channels, which you can find in our show notes. That's it for today, Beach fans. Stay safe and swim between the flags.